0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to our show. Today, we discuss about profitability, how you can increase your profit in your business. And I'm so excited to discuss this topic with Shell Horapitz. How are you?
1: I'm doing okay. How about you?
0: Oh, I'm doing great. I know that uh, you uh, a little bit poisoned by food. That's okay. I hope you're fine. Uh, uh, but, you know, I like that you uh, want to move forward. You know, <laughs> don't put uh, on the box uh, our discussion. Uh, The first question, uh, please, tell more about you, about your story, uh, background, experience, and why you decided to share with us about profitability.
1: Okay. Well, I have had two interwoven careers, one in marketing and one Mm -hmm. in activism. So in, well, fast forward all the way, I I got involved with both of them very early. I, I became an activist at 12 and a marketer at 15. So um, in a long time, I'm 65 right now. But what really pushed me in the direction that I'm in now was that in November 1999, a developer announced that he was going to build a big housing project with 40 luxury homes on a mountain right next to the mountain you can see out my window. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. One thing you can see out my window is a state park, and it always wins the best place to bring out-of-town visitors (laughs) award whenever anybody asks. And uh, you can see four states from up there. And so I said, oh, you're going to build 40 houses up to the top of the next mountain and ruin the view from up there and God knows what else? And other people said, "Eh, this is terrible. There's nothing we can do. And it's actually reading that part of the article where they interviewed the experts who said there was nothing we can do. Mm-hmm. That I said, well, that's that's the red flag in front of the bowl. I'm going to prove these people wrong and show that there is something we can do. One mm-hmm. day I wrote a book called, Oh Yes, There's Something We Can Do. But anyway, I started a movement. We had, um, I flyered the neighborhood. I got a press release in the local paper and local media. And we figured, okay, 20, 25 people will show up to the meeting, five will get involved, we will make the developer's life uncomfortable enough that in about five years we'll win this thing. Well, we had 70 people come to the meeting. We had another 30 call and say, I'd really like to be involved, I can't make that day. We organized several committees. When the dust settled, we had about 35 in the active core. And we beat that project back in just 13 months. Even I thought it would take five years, as I said. So that was in 2000 when we won, December 2000. And after the dust settled, I kind of thought, well, this campaign brought everything I knew about marketing into a community organizing activism situation. What would happen if I turned that inside out and found some lessons in the activist world that might apply to business? And I started thinking about business ethics as a success strategy And that expanded to thinking about green principles as success strategies. And then that expanded to thinking about social equity, about solving problems like hunger, poverty, racism, war, catastrophic climate change. And so over the last couple of decades, I've really sharpened my focus on helping businesses achieve profitability while doing good in the world. And not just through their charity work, but by incorporating these principles directly into their core values and their products and services. So uh, perhaps, uh, Anatoly, it might be useful if I gave a couple of concrete examples, because I know I'm talking- Yeah, sure, So
0: go ahead, yeah.
1: Okay, so there's a company called D-Light, D period, L-I-G-H-T, all lowercase. They make solar LED lanterns, and they sell them at a profit in places where typically they're replacing kerosene or they're replacing darkness. So let me tell you a little bit about kerosene. It's toxic, it's flammable, it's nasty stuff. You have to buy it, of course, all the time because it's a non-renewable fossil fuel. So if you're in a place like, say, Rwanda and you're earning $25 a month and you're paying $2 a month for your kerosene, that's a big hit on your income. Mm -hmm. So by saying to them, okay, we'll sell you this lamp on a time payment. So for the first 10 months, you'll pay the same $2 a month. And then after that, you pay nothing and you have the lamp for many years. Um, what do you think about that? And by the way, you won't get sick, you won't start a fire and all the rest of it. So it's a very, very good business model, assuming you can make money at that price point, and they can. And so you're getting the benefits of getting off fossil fuel for this lighting. You're getting better light. So maybe the family can do things like a sideline craft business in the evenings Or maybe the kids can see better and do their homework better and get better grades and eventually better careers. The person who is selling and servicing the unit is having a job. And so there are are benefits and wins all over the place. Uh, Another great example is a brownie company called Grayston Bakery. And you've probably eaten their stuff because they make the brownie components of Ben & Jerry's ice cream. And they also sell to various high-end hotels and they have the most amazing employment policy I have ever, ever heard. For jobs on the line, entry-level jobs, this is how you get a job there. You put your name on a list, and when your name is next on the list, you get offered a job, period. Doesn't matter if you're an ex-felon, ex-mental patient, homeless, whatever it is, whatever baggage you're carrying around, you get a job offer. And if you're hired, then you get the training to make that job offer workable. So you go from being unemployable to having maybe two or three years good credit on your resume and either working your way up the company, they hire from within a lot, or you um, then are in a position to go out and seek other kinds of jobs because you can now show steady employment, growth and responsibility, and a quality product that people have heard of. Even if they don't know the company, they know who the company is selling to so you're creating jobs out of nothing and um that company has grown very rapidly and interestingly enough anatoly now they train other companies in how to do open hiring so that's another profit center they've developed so those are two i could give dozens of examples
0: nice nice love it love it yeah real example uh i'm curious about uh um... For example, uh, you had this experience in two thousands. Uh, what changed for this time? Like twenty-two years—it's a lot. And uh, for example, I can see that SEO changed a little bit game, but right now uh, SEO uh, is uh, coming back to uh, foundation of marketing, and of human psychology, user experience. Because uh, ten years ago, when I started my SEO journey. I just optimize for the sake of Google. Right now, I I tell all my clients, forget about Google, think more about human beings. Can you tell more uh, about user experience, about customers, how to find a brand persona and how to satisfy their intent?
1: Well, I I think a brand persona based on things like honesty, trust, Mm -hmm. reliability, customer service is always huge. So... Mm -hmm. One thing I've learned, I, I've written 10 books on marketing, we should say that. And this is my most recent one and my second guerrilla marketing book. This is Guerrilla Marketing for mm-hmm. the World, uh, nominally co authored with the late J. Conrad Levinson, mm-hmm. who founded the Guerrilla Marketing brand. There are about 100 guerrilla marketing books out there, and I've written two. So I've done a lot of research on marketing over the years. Eight of my 10 books are about marketing. And Actually, four of them are specifically about green and social change business marketing. So this is an area I've spent a lot of attention to. But one of the things people don't realize is depending on which study you look at, it's going to cost you typically anywhere from five to ten times to bring in a new customer as to bring back an existing customer. So Mm -hmm. if there were no other reason to do great customer service, that's a reason so that you're not wasting 80% of your marketing energy. You can bring the same people back, but there's more to it than that. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. In in addition to um, the, uh, you know, that, that ability to bring people back very cheaply, if you treat them really well, they become your ambassadors, your evangelists. They're bringing new customers for you for free. Yeah. Yeah. What the power? Yeah. So this means being responsive. It means not shirking responsibility, accepting that you may have caused a problem, and then going to, okay, what can I do to make it right? And often, if you ask the dissatisfied customer, and they tell you what you can do to make it right, and it's something you can do, you turn that person from an enemy to an ambassador. So and of course, these days, many of us have 10,000 friends on social media. So you're not just telling 10 people in your inner circle anymore. Oh, I had a horrible experience with that company. Just ask United Airlines, how many people have watched a video called United Breaks Guitars? Uh, last time I checked, it was many, many millions of people who had watched that video and came away with a very negative impression of this major airline because they totally screwed up a customer service issue and they did it with somebody who was a songwriter and told his story and uh, who knew enough about marketing to get a lot of hits on on his video. Mm -hmm. So that's the sort of thing you'd you'd rather not do from a practical point of view. And then there's the moral piece that if – you build a relationship with people. If you don't think transactionally, but you think long-term relationship, how can I make myself useful in this relationship? Which is a very different question than how can I squeeze the last dollar out of that person's pocket? Mm -hmm. The money follows. The money will take care of itself. And again, your marketing costs go way down. Your employee retention costs go way down because you're not having to hire new people all the time because people like working for you. They tell their... When you have a vacancy and you can hire, again, far less expensively. And when you look at the green side of things beyond customer service, um, you can reduce your costs of everything from energy to waste disposal to on and on it goes just by thinking more systemically about how you can make the least environmental impact, which if you do it right, is often the least costly as well.
0: Yeah. Love it. Love it. Yeah. I remember when uh, Bill Gates uh, shared that uh, negative reviews are the best way to uh, develop your products because you, you don't know uh, what you can develop without learning from uh, negative reviews because positive reviews are good, you know, of course, it's uh, it helps. But uh, when you learn from negative reviews, you can. Uh, create something better, much better, because marketing doesn't help bad products. Marketing can't save bad products. Yeah, it's better to create good products and go ahead with
1: that. But then you go back to the negative review and you say, "Um, dear Mr. Ms. So-and-so, thank you for your comment. Uh, We already acknowledged it and told you we were working on it. We want to let you know now that we kept that promise and we have the all new Model X that addresses that problem you had. And by the way, we're sending you a free copy. And uh, we would love to uh, check in with you in a week or two after you've had a chance to use the new version and see how you like it. And again, really build that relationship. Get a nice testimonial from somebody who says, oh, I used to hate this company because I bought this thing and it didn't work the way it was supposed to. And then, wow, they reached out to me (laughs) two months later and they said, uh, yeah, we, we... acknowledged you when you did this, but now we went and fixed it and it took a little while, but we think you'll love it. And here's a free copy. I am so happy with this company. I'm never going anywhere else to buy my axes. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, Yelp shared a study about uh, replying to negative reviews and uh, it's possible to change 30% of all negative reviews to good ones if you fix the problem. If you decide there are problems, so learn from them. Why not? You can get uh, 30% uh, uh, back, you know, with positive reviews. Yeah, that's a good number. Yeah, interesting about that. Uh, Can you tell about uh, marketing, how to find the right marketing channel? For example, if uh, a company are looking for new ways to uh, promote their products, uh, how to find this channel? Because uh, marketing is huge. We have many different uh, directions, approaches, uh, SEO, social media, I don't know, uh, content marketing. According to your experience, how to find the right channel?
1: Well, you're not going to like this answer because it depends. It depends on what kind yeah, of you who you're selling it to, where you see your company's strengths, where you see the weaknesses. So, developing a marketing strategy is a very individual thing. I'll just as an example, I have an author I'm working with now uh, who is coming out next year with a book on sufficiency, on enoughness, if you will, and mm-hmm. she is a stroke survivor. She doesn't speak well. She speaks slowly and haltingly. Boom, no radio, no TV, okay, for starters. She's also in her 70s and not overly comfortable on social media. So I wrote her a marketing plan that was based a lot on print media, which she can do in her own time, which she can have reviewed by other people before it goes out. Um, And there'll be other things that she can do, uh, but like even bookstore events are not necessarily a good fit for her. So much of what, and I actually, one of my books on marketing is specifically on marketing for authors and publishers. So this is, again, something where I know something about it. And so it's the, the right strategies for her would be very, very different from a glad, a glib salesy type who can wind up after a question is asked and just keep going for three to five minutes and know when to shut up and not, ruin people by talking too much but at the same time get that message out and clear and articulate it and so those are going to be a different set of strategies for that kind of author or that kind of other product I don't only work with book publishers I work with a lot of different kinds of people
0: yeah I, I love your answer yeah because you know uh, I always tell my clients don't uh, overlearn your competitors because competitors use their strong size you know uh, but if you are not good with uh, SEO, go to YouTube, use social media, find other channels, yeah. use paid marketing. And I think uh, uh, I disagree with some uh, common thinking that we need to analyze competitors to do the same. Uh, or, for example, even to search where your audience is. For example, my audience might be on Twitter. But if I don't like Twitter, it's not my social media. Uh, I like LinkedIn. Why not? I can find on LinkedIn because we have 800 million people on LinkedIn. So it's possible to find LinkedIn there. Uh, my no, life on me.
1: That's where you found me on LinkedIn. And I'm, by the way, I've been on yeah. LinkedIn since 2003. I'm in the first 150,000 members of LinkedIn.
0: Mm, um, yeah, well, awesome. <laughs> out of yeah. Those
1: people. But it, it's, um, I, sometimes you go against the conventional wisdom. I, I had one mm-hmm. client who the first thing I told him is, your price is too low. I mm-hmm. told him, you are offering value to a professional audience. You need to charge about double what you think you're going to charge. And he took that advice and he was delighted. I had another client who had developed both a programming tool for green apartment buildings and a social network for people who lived in the green apartment buildings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I told him he should franchise. He was only looking at his local market. And I said, you could go national and international with this. So sometimes Mm -hmm. it's about thinking big and sometimes it's about thinking very small, um, for like a local coffee company, I, I might do something that was extremely focused on getting people in from five to 10 miles away.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah love it uh can you tell more about books because i see uh some books on your background i love reading books it's my loving format i think uh, the foundation of all my skills uh, are coming from books of course i use different formats as well but i love reading books uh, uh, can you tell more about your books and uh, other books that can help entrepreneurs to go
1: ahead sure and by the way that is a real bookshelf i can go over here and pull something mm-hmm. up. it is not any kind of um fake background, and and the painting behind me is one that my stepfather did. Um, Mm -hmm. And so books, I mean, I have written 10 books, as I said. The only one that is still in print is Guerrilla Marketing to Heal the World. But I do have some copies left of my Marketing 101 book, which is called Brassroots Marketing Getting Noticed in a Noisy World. It's it's, uh, somewhat old now. It was published in 2000. But what I did with the overstock is I just cut the price more than half. So it was 22.95 and now I think I sell it for 10 or $12, I forget. Um, And that's for somebody who wants to learn, like how do you write a press release that will get noticed? Uh, Mm -hmm. That's a really good book to do that. Oh yeah,
0: I need it, I need it.
1: I, I have been campaigning for years on redoing press releases in a totally different way. What I call the story behind the story press release. Mm-hmm. And it. Yeah, it's not the five Ws typical press release: who, what, where, when, why. Those put people to sleep. So <laughs> yeah, like I, I had one client with a book on electronic privacy, and this is many years ago, back when identity theft was not a big concern. So, rather than mm-hmm. write, and this actual press release is in that book, the uh, grassroots marketing book, uh, the traditional five Ws wisdom would have had me write something like. Electronic Privacy Expert <laughs> this new book. My headline was, it's 10 o'clock. Do you know where your credit history is? And then I talked about how it might be vacationing in databanks and uh-huh. companies. And the book didn't even show up until the third paragraph. And the <laughs> paragraph
0: love it yeah I I can estimate PR especially uh, when I ask them please write a study about this company and when they write more about company without sharing value I understand they don't understand about PR anything you know (laughs) why uh, some big journalists need to publish articles about a company, not about products that can help their readers. So, yeah. Exactly. It's
1: the the basic rule in marketing is to think about the features only as a way to get to the benefits. Yeah. So, and I do that a lot in in my books. So Guerrilla Marketing to Heal the World is really good because it's designed to help any size business, whether they're a solopreneur. And by the way, I have been a solopreneur since starting my business in 1981. So I've been doing this for 42 years without any employees. (laughs) Um, And all the way up to, there are examples in there from the Fortune 100. I talk about Unilever. I even talk about Walmart, which is not a company Mm -hmm. I choose to do business with. I have a lot of issues about their labor and store siting and other policies. But oh my goodness, they have done more to green the supply chain than I will do in all my years as a consultant, because they are basically telling people, if you want to sell to us, you're going to do this. And if not, then you're not our supplier. They mm-hmm. have that, which I don't have, and they were willing to use it. Um, not sure how much they're still doing since the change of CEOs, but the one who put this into place was a gentleman named Lee Scott, and he did wonderful things. And he got people like me to stop bad-mouthing the company about their labor and store-siting pro- policies. Mm-hmm. They were doing so much good on the environment. As I said, I still don't choose to shop there. But... Um, that's one, one, you know, at the very extreme big example company. But even General Motors, General Electric, the book talks about how they have saved enormous sums of money by changing their approach to this more holistic. And I went to a conference a few years ago on corporate social responsibility. It was called the Responsible Business Summit. And most of the speakers were from places like Ford or Chrysler or PepsiCo or Coke or, you know, huge companies that everyone's heard of. And the the overwhelming message from the speakers is there is a dollar return to this. And they were not even looking at the profitable product service pieces that I look at. They were just looking at the corporate image, the PR benefits, the lowering of resistance to the things they wanted to do. And they were still putting dollars on those things. And they were big dollars. So when you add in, if your product or service itself makes money and makes the world a better place like those two examples I mentioned and many others I could, that's a game changer. And one of the uh-huh. things it means is if if this aspect is doing well for the company and there's a recession, they don't go, oh, what can we cut? Oh, let's cut the social responsibility thing. It's a cost, it's not a benefit. Well, if, well let's see what else we can cut because we need to keep that. It's bringing in revenue, it's saving money, It's uh, a really good thing that we're doing for our stockholders we can't get rid of that so it, it mm-hmm. builds protection in
0: mm-hmm. yeah interesting so valuable
1: uh you, have to of...
0: you know yeah.
1: if you're greenwashing forget it you'll be found out and you'll be made a fool of and it will not be productive for you mm-hmm. yeah, sorry put really you Go
0: ahead. Yeah. Uh, can you tell more about guerrilla marketing? Because, um, for example, uh, I remember when Elon Musk uh, shared that uh, Tesla doesn't use guerrilla marketing because it, it doesn't work for them. Uh, I think uh, uh, it works for many companies, Coca-Cola, many others. Uh, can you tell how to uh, get data? Uh, before creating a campaign with guerrilla marketing? Uh, and uh, how do we know that it works for a specific company, for example?
1: Okay, well, when you say guerrilla marketing and you give that description, what I think you're talking about is street marketing, handing out samples. Mm-hmm. And yeah. That's one little aspect of guerrilla marketing. Guerrilla marketing is far broader than that. And I personally have not mm-hmm. ever been involved in designing a public street sample program. So I can't really talk about that. Uh I can tell you that guerrilla marketing is the idea of being quick and nimble, going where your competition hasn't figured out to be yet. Maybe you turned around and got back out again before they notice. Um, But being able to respond, uh, the the classic example from my co-author, Jay Levinson, is uh, of some guy who owns some kind of retail store. And all of a sudden, two huge competitors open up on either side of him. So rather than just pull his tail between his legs and shut his doors he hangs a big banner over his door that says main entrance mm-hmm.
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah interesting
1: not know why it was the main entrance to his little part of the store um mm-hmm. but you know competitors i i believe very strongly that a competitor is an ally i haven't made a deal with yet
0: mm-hmm. so
1: let's look at jay jay was a copywriter a speaker on marketing all these things that I do, a book author. And why did he want to collaborate with little old me? Uh Well, he got a lot of money for doing very little work because I did nearly all the work. Um, Uh And because he, one of the things in my research before I pitched him is I noticed that he was sympathetic but uninformed on a, a number of issues relating to green and social equity stuff. So I pitched him that I could bring him credibility to this new and growing and very, very important market. And he pitched me on the advantages of being a guerrilla marketing author, which he didn't have to pitch real hard because I already knew that, that would open many doors for me. And as mm-hmm. I, I'll grab the other one uh, to see if you can see it. Uh, this is the first book we did together is Guerrilla Marketing Goes Green. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> and that one was on the bestseller list, by the way, for something like 31 months. Uh, Nice. (laughs) So by collaborating, people kept saying to me, Well, you're doing almost all the work. Why do you want to do this? And I say, Well, okay, let's look at it this way Wiley and Sons, that published the first book, Guerrilla Marketing Goes Green, they typically at that time were paying a mid list author like me roughly $15,000 advances. Mm -hmm. When I brought Jay in, and it was kind of funny because I I had had an introduction to them from one of their best selling marketing authors. And I pitched them on a rewrite and expansion of my first book on socially conscious company marketing. And they took a long time to decide. And first I thought, well, if they say no, I can pitch Jay and see if he wants to make it a guerrilla book and then finding a publisher will be easy. And then they said yes. And it's like, you could still ask Jay. Hey, Wiley, what do you think if I bring him in? Oh, you mean we get two marketing gurus? We like it. So so I went to Jay and at that time you did not have to pay for the privilege of being a guerrilla marketing author. You simply shared the revenues and did all the work. So um, I went to him and he said yes. And then I went to Wiley and said, we've got Jay on board. And they said, okay, great, we'll give you $25,000. I said, I have to share it with Jay. Can you go any higher? And they gave me 30. So 30 divided by two is 15 which is the same money I would have gotten as a mid-list author coming in without Jay. So I didn't lose any money on the advance. I gained uh-huh. access to, at the time, he had 84,000 members in his online community. And I did nice. some seminars for them and uh, you know made uh, made an impression there. Uh-huh. Again, once again, I am now part of the biggest brand in marketing history with two books in the series out of about 100. And no one can ever take that away from me. And people, that's one of the, two or three credentials that people really notice when they look at what I've done. Uh So why wouldn't I do it? I've expanded my platform. I've expanded my influence. I'm getting the word out through a major publisher. Yeah. It's, it it was a a very good strategic move on my part. And this is the same reason that people go um, write books together with the chicken soup people or the dummies people.
0: Uh How do you divide chapters of this book? Because uh, I think, like, if you write a book together, uh, someone is responsible for uh, some chapters, other for others. How do you divide them?
1: This particular one, Jay wrote a three hundred or six hundred word—I forget—introduction, and Uh I took a piece that he had in a book that only had his name on the cover, didn't have anybody else's name on the cover, and I took another piece about the same size, and I did the Mm -hmm. rest. (laughs) <laughs> so it was, yeah. it was not a fair distribution of labor, but it was worth it to me because of the benefits that I outlined. And mm-hmm. I, I have now, because of that platform, I have spoken at a guerrilla marketing conference. And I've, you know, when I attend, I'm a celebrity because I'm one of their authors and I have built a relationship with his widow And so, again, the the benefits continue to to roll out. And plus, in the marketing community, being a guerrilla marketing author, Mm -hmm. any conference that I want to speak at, I can pretty much say, hey, I'd love to be on your program.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Interesting story. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, By the way, can you tell more about uh, sharing story? For example, uh, you know, uh, I often see that uh, companies are using this technique, for example, Apple.
1: uh, Uh, I'm sorry. I need you to slow down. I missed half of that. Ah,
0: Okay. (laughs) Uh, how to create a story. For example, uh, Tim Cook from Apple, uh, he, he shared a story uh, how Apple Watch uh, helped uh, free people. Uh, I don't remember exactly about these people, but uh, he, sh- he didn't share features, uh, how it, uh, this uh, uh, Apple Watch are good. Uh, he shared three stories. And after that, I bought Apple Watch, uh, mm-hmm. by the way, free. Apple Watches, because uh, if I buy one, I need to buy to my wife, to my son, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, so yeah, things happen. Can you tell how to craft your story in marketing campaign uh, according to your experience?
1: Yeah, I'm very much a believer in story based marketing, and the story should highlight the successes, not so much of you and your company, but your clients and, and mm-hmm. customers. Let me see if I can quickly flip through and find a good example here in the book. Um, I have dozens of stories here. It's just a matter of figuring out um, where mm-hmm. I might find one. Um, let see what, let's try that. La la la, I'm trying not to have too much dead air here. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. Um, That's not quite. Let's see here. Okay, here's a little story I tell in the book about diapers of all things. You're a parent, so uh-huh. uh, sometimes the subject, the subhead is is diaper doings. Uh, sometimes the eco-friendly alternative is nothing more than a return to or refiguring of the way things used to be through much of history. Consider diapers, nappies, if you're in the UK. When Jay and Shell were toddlers in the 1930s and 1950s, our parents used cloth diapers. There were no such things as disposable diapers. Today's earth-conscious parents will use cloth diapers, perhaps organic cotton, unless they live in a water shortage area, in which case they may choose biodegradable disposables. But now they can buy natural fiber wraps with Velcro closers that slip on over the diaper and keep things a lot neater and more comfortable for the toddler, than the horrible plastic undies and sharp pins of yore and get their dirty diaper hamper picked up in a hybrid or bicycle by a cleaning service that uses non-chlorine bleach and gentle hypoallergenic all-natural fair trade soaps. Now that's one paragraph. I could find five stories to tell in 300 words a piece from that one paragraph. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh,
0: Love this format,
1: yeah. um, uh, Here's another paragraph actually on the facing page about a trash hauling service Modernizing that concept, we discovered that bikes with trailers can haul enormous loads. In Northampton, Massachusetts, for example, Pedal People, a bicycle-powered trash hauling and produce delivery service, has been operating many years. Its small feet, fleet of trailer-equipped bikes prices its services fairly close to truck-powered trash haulers and has picked up contracts from many local stores and offices. Mm-hmm. Again, yeah, I, I could make tons of marketing from that one paragraph.
0: Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. love examples. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 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 you know, I'm uh, How, uh, for example, uh, if you started today from scratch without any experience, knowledge, skills, what would you do to learn more about marketing?
1: <laughs> well, that brings us back to books. And I realize I never finished answering your question about books uh, that I think people should Yeah. Read. Go ahead. So I have learned enormously by reading and mm-hmm. by watching. Um, I, I listen to a lot of learning calls or watch learning webinars, but my primary source is reading. And one of the things I do to make sure that I'm continuing to read is I review one book a month in my newsletter. Mm-hmm. So like last month I reviewed Seth Godin's group project with like 300 authors called The Carbon Albonnec. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, I've got about this book, yeah.
1: So some, some of the books that have made a real difference for me well, actually, biomimicry. I found the book kind of hard to read, but her TED talk, Janine Benyus, uh, B E N Y U S, and Janine uh-huh. is A-A-N-I-N-E, has a wonderful TED talk about finding nature solutions. So, like when I talk, I sometimes say, if you want to know about bridge building, <clears throat> try that again. If you want uh-huh. to know about bridge building, ask a spider. They know more than we do. So she talks about lizards that walk on the ceiling and how that helps develop products and uh, just how uh, a monsoon area of India copes naturally with a climate that's dry 11 months and then flooding the other month Um, Mm -hmm. and how the environment adapts to that and what we can learn from that about building engineering. So that was one very exciting one. Um, Cradle to Cradle talks basically about zero waste and the circular economy. Uh, On the marketing side, I really feel like I owe my career as a copywriter to discovering Jeffrey Lant in the 1980s. And I actually interviewed him for my first major publication, Marketing Book, which was Marketing Without Megabucks, way back in 1993. And... Jeffrey and I have some definite stylistic differences, particularly once I I made the mistake of convincing him to go online, and then he went online in a very hustly way that made me very uncomfortable. But um, the books of his that really influenced me were done well before that. And one in particular called Cash Copy really turned my head upside down and inside out about what makes successful copy and how it has to be focused on the client need and not how great you are.
0: Mm -hmm. yeah love it
1: love it. among many Mm -hmm. I'm a voracious reader this will be the first year in a while that I don't read 80 books it'll probably be more like 40 or 50 this year and that's Mm -hmm. only because I do a lot of my reading on an indoor bike in the mornings and now instead of doing the bike seven days a week I'm alternating with cardio classes and I can't read during the cardio class
0: (laughs) (laughs) got it yeah yeah I have the question about uh, the future of marketing. Uh, Can you forecast this future? Uh, uh, (laughs) Yeah, I know it's hard. But what do you think? What kind of future will be in marketing? All
1: right, well, this definitely has the shell bias. I think marketing will more and more be about integrity, about making the world better, about caring about far more than the bottom line, because that's what people want. Every single study I've looked at, I could probably find one pretty quickly here among dozens, Okay. I opened it random here. (laughs) As far back as 1998, a study commissioned by the UK-based Cooperative Wholesale Services found that 60% of retail food customers, even in the absence of an organized boycott, have avoided a shop or product they associated with unethical behavior. So one of the clear messages of guerrilla marketing to heal the world is not to do unethical behavior. Uh And, um, you know, avoid the people boycotting you for that. And instead, do deliberately ethical, positive behavior that has people flocking to you. I think Mm -hmm. about chocolate. I discovered quite a while ago, sometime in the 90s, that most commercial chocolate at that time was being produced with child slave labor in various countries in Africa, particularly the Ivory Coast and Ghana. And I'm like, I don't want to be part of that. So I stopped buying that stuff and I started looking for fairly traded chocolate, which at that time was very hard to find. There were only a few brands, but I wasn't the only one who made that switch. And what happened is by around, I don't know, 2005, maybe 2010, there were dozens of brands. So now I can walk into a store and I can buy Theo, I can buy Alter Eco, I can buy Equal Exchange, I can buy um, Divine. They're all fairly traded, certified And they're all, I don't have to feel guilty about buying them. Mm -hmm. the market has shifted, and the market shifts. We now see a world in which the alternative energy, the green energy sector, now produces about three times as many jobs as fossil fuels. That is an incredible shift.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) And as market driven. we haven't done much in terms of putting in laws to make this necessary, but... People look out their windows. They see, oh, my goodness, it's 105 degrees in Portland today. It's, um, it, it was five degrees uh, below zero in the wintertime when it's supposed to be 30. And people see the world. <laughs> it's kind of hard not to notice. Mm-hmm. Wildfires and tornadoes and all this stuff. And people are like, well, maybe it's time to look at this climate change stuff. It's a shame and a crime that we waited so long to deal with it. We knew about this in the 70s. Um, there's um, a mentor of mine uh, who we don't know each other personally, but his writing mm-hmm. and speaking has been a huge influence on me. His name is Amory Lovins. He's the co-founder of the Rocky Mountain Institute, which is a green think tank, green business think tank. Mm-hmm. And Amory built a house in the suburbs of Aspen, Colorado in 1983, 84. Now, you're new in this country. You might not know Aspen. Aspen is... The ski capital of the Western states. Okay, Mm -hmm. go to Aspen because they can ski there, and they go they can ski there because the weather is really cold, and there's great snow. Mm -hmm. So, in one of the coldest places in the continental U.S., um, this man built a house that is so energy efficient that he didn't bother putting in a furnace, and he is growing bananas in his Mm summer. So basically, net zero house finished in 1984, and it's a big house. I've been there, it's 4,000 square feet. Mm -hmm. Imagine what we would be what shape we would be in. You're from the Ukraine. Um, You know, right now there's a big global crisis because Russia's oil supplies and the the grain supplies from Ukraine. Um, And we're dependent uh, on those supplies because we haven't made these shifts that we could have been making. Mm -hmm. So you know, imagine if, if every house built, okay, let's say just since 1990, we'll give them the first six years for the idea to catch on. What what a difference. We wouldn't be dependent on the Russians opening up their pipeline. We wouldn't yeah. be having the fossil fuel crisis. We wouldn't be having probably our carbon crisis would be way reduced. All of these things, if we had just done that. Um, Lovins was involved in some very, very interesting projects. One of them was the greening of the Empire State Building. Now, the Empire State Building was built in 1931. Oil was not quite free, but it was like 29 cents a gallon, or maybe it was 29 cents a barrel if you're buying in quantity. You know, pocket change. Mm -hmm. They didn't give a hoot about energy conservation. They wanted to be the tallest building in the world, and that was really all they cared about they wanted status. Sure. So um, this team, this consortium that included Rocky Mountain Institute, Johnson Controls and a bunch of other companies came in there. They actually took over a floor of the building to make a window remanufacturing um, plant in the building. So no transportation costs where they took every single window in the building and made it considerably higher all value. They changed the heating controls. They changed a whole lot of systems. Wasn't cheap, cost $13 million. But every year, they were saving $4.4 million. Now that, my friend, is a 33% ROI, which anybody with an MBA will tell you, you can't even achieve that. It's too high. You're 3% we do have. <laughs> um, <laughs> ROI just from doing the energy improvements. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now that was when gas was probably $253 a gallon. Now it's $455. So that savings is much, much bigger now. And so for the first three years, the savings paid back the investment. And after that it was profit.
0: Hmm. Yeah, love it. Love it. Yeah, I like you. How you share all the stories, you know, because for me it's more important to learn from stories, examples, practice than, uh, real theory. Yeah. So it's a big pleasure to get on my show to learn from you. Tell our audience how they can reach out to you, learn more about you, follow you.
1: Sure. I'm actually just in the process of getting my website redone, but it is functioning during the redo. Uh, so visit mm-hmm. goingbeyondsustainability.com and then come back mm-hmm. in a month or so and see what we've done to it because it's going to be a lot better. And um, mm-hmm. my phone number, which I can be called 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time, is mm-hmm. 413-586-2388. You cannot text to that number. It's a landline, but you can leave a message.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, got um, it, got it. Okay. Yeah, and, and LinkedIn profile, yeah.
1: I'm sorry? I
0: missed and it. LinkedIn.
1: LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Yeah, you can find yeah. me on LinkedIn, S-H-E-L. H O R O W I T Z. And I imagine with the show notes, you'll put my actual link up there.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And okay, um, guys, you can find yeah, all these links on this description below.
1: Yeah, I don't really use Twitter anymore. It used to be the best way to contact me, but Twitter, for some reason, locked me into an algorithm where I couldn't follow anyone, and I basically mm-hmm. stopped using it. <laughs> <laughs> got it, got really it. Use- okay. <laughs> yeah
0: guys you can find all these links in the description below listen us on apple google spotify uh by the way you can find all books uh to amazon yeah uh, i think uh, all books uh you can find all these links uh read these books you can see that a lot of valuable stuff you can get it i'm going let, to... let me make
1: a plea though that rather than buying it on amazon take the time and trouble to develop a relationship with your local independent bookstore or with one that's not mm-hmm. local to you book can service to you because the ripples of the economy of centralizing that much power in one merchant are scary. Uh-huh, so, uh-huh. like, I have a wonderful bookstore near me called the Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley, Massachusetts. And I will go in there and, and get a book, or I will pre order a book and have it come to me a few days later. Not quite as fast as Amazon, but fast enough. I usually have some many books that I'm reading before I get to that one. Mm -hmm. And if I can't find it there, I'll go to Powell's, which is an enormous place in Portland. I was there a year ago, Portland, Oregon. Um, It's like a block. It's an entire Mm -hmm. block, several stories high of books. It's it's (laughs) a brother's paradise. Um, So for those reasons, I I tend not to recommend people buy from Amazon. But if you insist, if you go go Mm on Beyond Sustainability and go to the book purchasing page, you'll see The option to buy it through your local independent, you'll see the option to buy it through several other um, national merchants, and one of them is Amazon.
0: Okay. Yeah, got it. Okay, guys, you can use this way. Yeah. So uh, I think you have a choice, you know, to search on Amazon or uh, to use this way. So it's up to you. Uh, but you need to do it because you can see a lot of valuable stuff. It's a big pleasure, again. Shall yeah, you know, well, and I should big...
1: mention that I, I really worked hard to keep this book easy to read. It's crammed with information, <sighs> but I, it is is not a book that is going to scare you off. Mm,
0: yeah, love it, love it. You know, I, I don't like when uh, I'm reading books and want to sleep, you know, because it, it's very hard. And uh, when, uh, yeah, by the way, some books uh, are written for the sake of uh, sharing some valuable stuff, but it's hard to understand and I need to read a few times. It's not a good way. I love simplicity. Yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> okay, okay. so, yeah, it's a big pleasure again, you know. Yeah. Uh, love all your uh, valuable stuff Uh, guys you can find all these links in the description below listen us on apple google spotify and see you next time